And welcome to the Dark Side of Soul podcast. This is Joe. This is Sean. Welcome to our second in our series on disasters that shaped modern Korea. Today, we're, yeah, we're doing number two. We're going to cover the 1980s. How about that, Sean? We're, we're both 80s kids, so sounds good to me. Yeah. There's a, there's a huge, there's a huge resurgence in 80s pop culture in the last five or so last, years. In the last three decades there have been resurgence since the 80s well not the 90s Uh, the early 90s was the death of the 80s i I remember 1992 buying a cd that was celebrating 80s music and i was like oh yeah that was the first time i thought of oh yeah we can look back on the 80s as a nostalgic time that was the first time i ever thought of that was back in 92 and i found that cd and that was amusing that they were pushing back against the rise of grunge probably at the time, everything else was kind of folding to grunge for that like two, three well, year period. Also and pushing that, that, back. That died in, mm. Also pushing back in the late 80s when everything really started sucking. Because uh, it was mostly early 80s music that, that I got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. New wave. New wave. Yeah. Men without hats. and <laughs> Yeah. Men without hats. Yeah. Safety dance. Yes. Yeah. And it was um, Cars, Gary Newman. And. Blinded me with science. The cars are uh, the cars. Their first, their first album's oh. good, but that's seventies, right? No, I'm talking about cars by Gary Newman. Oh, this. Oh, I see. I see. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One hit wonders. A lot of the one hit wonders from the eighties. Right, right. That were yeah. pre 1987 because now 87 was the Bon Jovi era when it all and Paul Abdul era when it started going went downhill. Hmm. Um. Yeah, the anyway. rise of the rise of singing ballads. But anyway, the the singing, yeah, that and hair metal was becoming such a mutation of itself. Right, right. But in Korea, for music, that was the era of uh, of Kim Kwang Sok. Yeah, and the and the the era of folk music being. Uh, voice of the the, the 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 musical voice of the zeitgeist. Yeah, it was like it's like the eighties in Korea was like the sixties in America. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. You say in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of I ways, say yeah. it. I say it. So that must be true. <laughs> All right. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna pull you in on the eighties and and I've I noted as I know as I noted last time, um, each one of what we cover, I noticed each one of the decades. It's a, it's a certain breed of disaster, and I noticed the '80s were mostly air disasters or in terrorism disasters. Um, North Korea uh, was getting involved. Um, uh, there were there was higher air travel, commercial air travel from Korea, but in 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 airlines like Korea Airlines were having their really bad growing pains. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and the 88 Olympics were coming and um, that affected a lot of things too as we'll find out yes yeah so we're gonna start off with the year was 1980 way back 
Yes. And we'll talk about Korean Airlines. Back then it was called Korean Airlines, not Korean Air. Uh, yeah, do you know when it changed its name? Yeah, 83, I think it was. I came across it in my research and I felt like um, that's not important enough for me to care. <laughs> so I didn't write it down. <laughs> the history of the company is is pretty interesting. I mean, Pak uh, uh, Pak Chung Hee had a had a hand in changing all that. One Rip day, that, ripped that company out of some other guy's hands. I'm going but, to dive deep into all this stuff. The the the, the history of the Chables. Mm. Oh man, when we start heading in that direction, that's really when we're going to get in. But I really want us to do foundations in the Joseon Dynasty first before we head there because sure. Yeah, because that's our foundation of why how the chables occurred, and also the colonial era, and and how Park Chung Hee was influenced by what he saw in Japan. Mm. Anyway, um, Korean Airlines Flight Fifteen. Um, it was on a flight from. Uh, Los Angeles to Seoul. Now, back then, the planes tended to refuel in Anchorage, Alaska, coming to Korea. It was very common uh, for lots of planes on this route. And it was coming into Gimpo, and there was it was calm. It was calm, but there was a little patchy fog, which had around 1,000 meters of visibility. And the plane circled a few times, and the the pilot decided to land and uh, he reported some trouble with the controls uh, shortly before beginning the landing, uh, which is around 7.15 a.m. And then 90 meters uh, short of the runway uh, hit an embankment slope. Uh, it also uh, hit an anti-aircraft gun, gun emplacement and uh, the wing had hit a parked military vehicle, which kind of, kind of shows what Korea was like back then. We had military vehicles and anti-aircraft guns placed everywhere. I think we still do. Yeah, well, I see I see military military helicopters uh, a couple times a week. You're on you but you're next to the North Korean border. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like So so we still do, yeah. In yeah. some parts, yeah. Mm. It's like watch for landmines. <laughs> um yeah, so the since it, when it hit the embankment, it pushed the landing gears, the main landing gears into the cargo compartment and that ruptured it. And the plane slid down the runway on its nose gear and on its belly and the sparks uh, uh, caught fire. Uh, and but but interestingly enough, the, the fuel tank was not ruptured. And besides, there was not much fuel left anyway, because it was at the end near the end of its trip. But the, a fire did break out in the cargo department and uh, the hydraulic fluid did catch on fire. Uh, in the end, uh, six six crew and nine passengers were killed. Four were seriously injured. It, I, I kept going back and forth on this. Some source says four seriously injured, but then I read the news stories and Severance hospitals said they weren't seriously injured. Yeah. I find anyway, a lot too, like a lot, like later some of the other stuff we'll talk about. Yeah, like some of the... the records contradict each other i find that a lot in older records yeah stuff so like this. Yeah. the pilot and crew um yes yeah, so six crew yeah like i said 
the, the six crew were killed, uh, including the pilot. Uh, an American and a Japanese passenger were also killed. And um, I was this is what I was trying to figure out. I think the ones that were passengers that were killed were from the upper deck of the craft. Now this is one of those two layer crafts, two story crafts, and they, they, there's a special like first class that's on above this on the second floor. I call it the second floor. It's there's a special word for that, some deck or something, some nautical mm. term. Anyway, but um, I think because they were the, the smoke might have climbed up there and um, mm. they might have been towards the end, last to leave. But um, but you think about this is out of 226 on board and 15 were killed in the obvious really bad, bad landing, air disaster. Uh, really interesting that only 15 were killed and it's credited that people said it was the quick actions of the crew they 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 set up they opened the emergency exits and get all the shoots out and that and it was a very orderly exit from the aircraft hmm. um there was an evaluation there were evaluations done um I, I found this really cool website called code 7700 which is run by uh, pilots and they 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 talk about uh, air disasters and such, and they analyzed them. And um, they say it was definitely pilot error that caused this. It wasn't, but what they said that in this type of weather, it was still very possible that they were trained properly to land the craft. Um, they say uh, the, the minimums for their approach were 500 meters, and, and they had. A thousand meters of visibility, and they said it was called the decision height would have been two hundred feet. So if, if they would have seen the lights, but not the runway at two hundred mm-hmm. feet. And at one hundred feet, they would have seen the runway. So um, uh, from this evaluator, they speculate that uh, a pilot, uh, the pilot likely either didn't have the discipline or the experience to remain on the instruments, and was tempt- would have been tempted to dive for the runway when he saw it. And he ducked under the glide path. Um, so he, it, it, to quote, he said, quote, a classic novice instrument pilot mistake. Boy. Oof. You know, when you're in an airplane, I'm not afraid of flying. I'm not afraid of heights. I, you know, I go to the mountains all the time. Um, mm. None of that stuff scares me. But you're in an airplane and it's entire journey your trust is in two people yeah well and no, a computer. More like, a and computer in the and ground ground crews as well of course um yeah, communications yeah. So, so it's more than two people but um, mechanically and i guess you know including the computer but and this was 1980 flight airplanes have certainly advanced since then yeah um a lot less accidents these days than I remember in the eighties. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember in the eighties hearing about plane crashes all the time. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. That's the thing. That's like when you're on a bus too. Your your trust is just in one person, and then the yeah. other people around you. But to to operate the the thing that you're on, mm-hmm. to be able to have the skills to avoid an accident, uh, or to not be reckless enough to cause one. Yeah, you put all of your trust into someone else. Yeah, as I got older, I agree with you. It, it, for me, it's really not as much the plane; it's the lack of control. 
You're giving yeah, up the, right. the control. Mm. Yeah, right. When you're a child, you don't think of it because you don't have any control over any much in your life. But as an adult, right. when you start gaining control, then you have to give that control up again. Right. Yeah, yep. that's what it is. Um, I'm going to quickly go through these, though, because I don't want to... Uh, some of these I'd like to come back to and do full episodes on them. Uh, but one that I will touch on really quickly is in 1982, uh, uh, the, there was the Korean Air Force C-123 accident. Uh, so it was, a, it was a plane on a, a training mission in Jeju. And there was it was bad weather, and they were they were on approach for landing and slammed into Mount Hala Halasan. Uh, it's considered the worst air disaster in Korean history, fourth worst, fourth worst in Korean history. Um, everyone was killed, uh, including forty-seven passengers. Every one of those passengers were soldiers from the army's, the Korean army's elite seven hundred seventh special mission battalion. Pretty much killed the battalion. <laughs> it's, right. I'm laughing. I'm laughing. I shouldn't be laughing over this, um, but it, it also was the the biggest loss of that battalion in Korean history as well. Right. Yeah. But I've that, never heard of that. Mm. Yeah, but that that's one that's lesser known, but um, uh, has affected things. But uh, one of the bigger ones, uh, which was a big international incident, was in 1983, Korean Airlines 007, 007. Um, I'm, I'm just going to go through this. I'm going to see if I can try to make this really quick, because I started diving into the rabbit hole with this. And I'd like to come back and talk about the details. But basically, it was a um, it was a Boeing um, passenger aircraft, um, very full, uh, that was flying from New York City to Seoul and was having a refueling stop in Anchorage, Alaska. And something went wrong with the navigation their autopilot and it accidentally veered into Soviet airspace. And uh, at the time, tensions were really high between the U S and the Soviet union. There are lots of things going on. Um, uh, Reagan was in power and uh, he was setting up missile programs and deploying the Navy. And a lot of the old Soviet hierarchy really thought Reagan was preparing for a secret nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. So they were they were on high alert. And and a Soviet missile test was planned in, in this area on the very same day the plane was going over. And it was at night. And uh, the Soviets mistook the plane. They thought it was a, a U.S. spy plane. And there were arguments there for the record, there were arguments between the generals about whether it was a civilian or not, whether they should really make sure it was a civilian craft or not. Uh, the Hawks won the argument and the, the aircraft was shot down. Um, and uh, again, in the aftermath, uh, there was the, uh, since since it was a South Korean plane, the South Korea had jurisdiction over who who would uh, find the wreckage, and it chose the the U.S. and Japan to do that. But the Soviet Union rushed right in and kind of harassed the U.S. Uh, Navy vessels, 
uh, while it was retrieving the the flight recorder uh, and uh, keeping really messing up the investigation to try to cover up that they shot that that was them that shot down the aircraft um, and then uh, later on after the fall of the Soviet Union all of this opening up and really everything was released and found out yeah um, the Soviet Union had the flight recorder and uh, it was it was the Soviet Union that shot down the aircraft definitely and it was uh, it's a really big story and I'm going to go back and do a whole episode over on this yeah that's big news. Um, I remember when I first heard about this and it was still, you know, you know, it was 1983, but when I first came in 2000s, there were uh, like some of my, my friends who remembered seeing it on TV at no. the time when they were just little kids. And then it was, it was all everyone, anyone talked about like that entire month of September that year. Yeah. Um, it was huge news. Very tragic with everything else that was going on in the country at the time. Yeah. Well, this is where I want to veer off from the usual um, common wisdom about what happened. Um, I mean, we do know the Soviets uh, uh, blew it up. Uh, and, but there's been questions about why, how it ended up in U Soviet airspace in the first place. And it was just, it was chalked up to a faulty... Uh, maybe pilot error in setting up the navigation of the autopilot, which likely it was, but even then, why didn't, why hadn't they discovered it? It was wrong. And if they had, why didn't they fly back? Which was, that's protocol is if, if it's all set up, uh, why didn't it fly back? Oh, this, I should point this out too. Um, before I go into that is because of this incident that Ronald Reagan uh, pushed to allow worldwide access to the burgeoning GPS system at the time. And so it opened it up to, uh, for better navigation for aircraft so that this wouldn't happen again. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, later in 1996 on, in the monthly Chosun, um, a pilot that was in an aircraft, a, K a Korean air aircraft, Karina Airlines aircraft that was behind this particular one um, went public and said uh, it there was more complicated than that. The, the reason that the pilots might the, the pilots might have discovered something was wrong, but they were scared to go back because they were scared of getting pub punished by Korean Air head corporate corporation itself. Hmm. Um. They said that there was a policy of punishing crews for making mistakes for turning back, and there was there was um, uh, precedence for this. But but he he says there was evidence to this because he was radioing the pilot of this aircraft at the time and asking why they were slipping behind schedule, and and the pilot replied, "Oh, the wind is strong," and he said that the reply was really short and hasty, like he was trying to hide something, <laughs> and so there was this. Uh, this KL policy that that uh, caused pilots to take more risk because of, they were scared of being punished. Um, 
uh, and he, sa- he thinks that the autopilot, the, what's called the INS part of the autopilot, was not functioning right because the flight path was too meandering. It was it was going all over the place, where an INS system would kind of put them in a straight or uh, a some type of line that you can graph easily with a protractor, <laughs> just a smooth path, not not uh, an etch a sketch type of path. Um. So. Uh, usually what you do is you put in the coordinates while you're still in the boarding gate. And then if you discover there's an error in the middle of the flight, you can't really fix it. You have to return to the previous airport. And so a year before that, in 1982, there was a Korean Airlines flight from Paris that had done this. The pilot discovered the the navigation error. He returned to Paris to fix it, and he was suspended for 20 days. Um, and then there was another flight from Honolulu, and they mistakenly put the uh, coordinates in for Hong Kong, um, which was not where they were going. They returned to the <laughs> airport. Pilot was severely punished. That's like, that's like, oh, okay, kids, we're going to go to Busan. What the <laughs> hell are we doing in Sokcho? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's it, yeah. Uh, and then another flight from Anchorage to Seoul, a student pilot put in the wrong coordinates. And uh, since they were feared, they feared being punished as well. They just turned off the autopilot and flew by compass. And they were very lucky to get through. And what they did was they went high enough and they found a, a Japan Airlines plane and they just followed it. <laughs> <laughs> that's going. That's going west. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, they knew it was going to go in the generation direction they were going. So they just followed that plane. And so this pilot in this interview said that he he did bring it up with Korea Airlines management, but they refused to change the policy. So hmm. um, that you know, in a lot of ways, you you and I have been chatting a bit, especially you. You're so interested in how things in the past have really dictated things that have happened in the more recent past, and then currently happening today that mm-hmm. kind of that kind of policy really reeks of uh you know authority going a little bit too far yeah things yeah yeah and really. there was uh remember when the 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 bad landing in san francisco mm, like, i think yeah. it was 10 years ago yeah about that yeah and there was some speculation that was still continuing that one pilot was was scared to mention to his superior that something mm. might be right might not be right i remember the crew as well like the the cabin crew they they noticed something wrong and they were afraid to tell the pilot yeah yeah and then what look what happened yeah yeah so seeing if there's a mm. pattern there mm-hmm. all right um i will go more in detail about that in a future episode but that's really interesting international intrigue of a design it, it is everything lining up perfect storm of everything lining up that went wrong on this one so many things could have been done to stop this so many things and no not terrible yeah i'm I'm sure there are other dimensions other alternate universes in the multiverse where this plane was fine because they caught something but we live in the the multiverse where everything went wrong and it was shut down it's yeah. really sad too. I, I had a tough time researching this one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was yeah, a sad terrible. one. All right, um, but more bad stuff with airplanes. Not done with airplanes. 
<clears throat> in the 1980s. <clears throat> and there's more. All and right. There's more. Oh, right. Get, have a sip of that beer, Sean. What are you drinking tonight? I am Joe. Well, Joe. Well, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> I am drinking, again, Amazing Breweries uh, American Pale Ale. American Brewery, Amazing Breweries does not sponsor the Dark Side of Soul podcast, but they can. <laughs> So, Please, so, listeners, I think we're trying to lobby, get our listeners to lobby Amazing Brewery to sponsor. So, if Amazing show. Breweries would like something to sponsor, you can sponsor my beer drinking happen on Friday nights. <laughs> and I'm going to take a swig. If they sponsor, I might join you. Mm. That's right. I'm back there off the go. wagon after over a year, even though I'm not yeah. really drinking much. <clears throat> controlled drinking that's like me i don't drink outside it's of just, really fridays and saturdays a glass of wine two glasses of wine once a week maybe mm, yeah. right i only drink on days that have vowels uh okay so um <laughs> yeah in 86 but moving getting out of the skies and getting back down to the ground um some nasty stuff happens in gimpo airport oh um, i live next to that there you go. And that's when I first arrived in Korea. That's where I arrived because Incheon wasn't even open yet mm. when I first came to Korea. So I came into inter I came into Gimpo International Airport and I worked there up until yes, you <clears> did. coronavirus ruined everything. Um, but I did work at Gimpo International Airport. Uh, and uh, in uh, September 1986, 14th, uh, Korea was getting ready for the Asian Games. They were hosting. And, uh, of course, all the preparations were done. All, all the stadiums and whatnot were ready. And foreign athletes were already arriving. A lot of them were, were already in Korea and arriving right around that time as well. And I think it was a little less than a week before the game started. I think it was like five or six days. Now, mm -hmm. leading up to this, South Korea had continually said that North Korea will very likely try to disrupt the games. Uh, and their main precedent for believing this went back to 1970 because uh, South Korea was supposed to host the Asian Games in 1970, but they didn't. They, they backed out because of all the threats from North Korea. Hmm. So go ahead to uh, go ahead 16 years and the North or sorry, the South is uh, uh, ready to do it. They're not afraid of the North interrupting, but they were assuming they, they would. Now, the North didn't participate in the games uh, because, of course, they were boycotting it. They didn't like the fact that the South was hosting. And they were successful in getting Vietnam and Cambodia to also boycott. Hmm. So pretty big. They tried to get China to boycott, and China was like, "Go away!" It's like a little, like a bigger, older yeah, brother uh, yeah, pushing his little brother away. Yeah. You and your you and your friends go and play your dinky cars out wherever. I'm going. I'm going to go play with the big kids. That's kind of how China responded to that. So anyway, the South was ready to host the games, uh, but they were very cautious and they were expecting a disruption from the North. Uh, so on September 14th at 3:12 in the afternoon at the International Terminal, Gimpu Airport, there was an explosion. Uh, the blasts came from a metal trash bin near a taxi stand, and it killed five people. Uh, it killed a whole family, well, five oh. members of a family. 
killed a father named Kim Bong Duk. He's 42 years old. His wife, Ok Gun Suk, 34 years old. Their daughter, Kim Hyun Ju, whose age was never released, uh, but we can guess that she was no older than a teenager, uh, maybe you know in her teens, uh, as old as that, or uh, as young as an elementary student. Mm-hmm. And the mother's uh, younger brother, Ok Gun. Uh, his just name was Okun. Uh, he was 22 years old. So that was a family and and an uncle who were all killed. And they, other members of the family were injured in the blast. And all of them are at the airport because they were bidding farewell to another relative who is leaving Korea. Oh my! So they just bed, just bade farewell. And then that relative went through the gates they all left, went outside by the taxi stand, and then the explosion happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fifth person to die in the blast was an airport employee named Yu Ju Han. He was 41 years old, and he was simply changing a light bulb oh, at my. the time of the blast, and he was killed. Uh, up to another like 30-odd, the numbers are different. Nowadays, a lot of people say it was about 36 the numbers at the time were different for the for I'm talking about the injured. The number at the time uh, was different. It was like 19, and then it changed again. Um, so, like initial reports said, 20 plus or so, but 21 or 22 people uh, were seriously injured. But then that was changed. I think it was just because they were just kind of trying to figure out what was happening at the time. But I think today, generally, it's it's agreed that 30 plus about 36 people were were injured in mm-hmm. quite a few seriously at the time. Uh, and then of course, to the building, there was a lot of heavy, heavy structural damage to the walls and windows and whatnot. Now at that time, and Joe, you know, as well, currently Gimpu airport, I guess most airports really, a lot of them, like the, the walls are glass, they're windows where you, right. you just like when you get off to go into the terminals. Yes. Uh, so a bunch of those walls were shattered Yeah, and, they were. and whatnot. A lot of damage at the time. Uh, in the investigation into the blast, found batteries and wiring nearby. But the interesting point: the batteries were South Korean. Oh, so uh, the South strongly suggested at the time that the explosion was very similar to a blast that occurred in Daegu in 1982. So. What happened then was that there was an American government building that was attacked. There was Mm -hmm. a blast there. Killed two people who were walking by at the time. I don't even think they worked in the building. Uh, They were walking by the building and they just, as the explosion happened, and they were killed. Um, There were people who blamed it on political dissidents at the time, uh, but it seems likely that it was North Korea. Hmm. Now, the Gimpu Airport blast was also likened to the Rangoon explosion in 1983. This was quite big. This was an assassination attempt on Chun Doo-won. The dictator uh, of Korea at the time. Right. South Korea. South Korea, right. So we have a whole, we have a, oh, two, ep- well, one whole episode just on him. Well, not specifically on him, but centered on the the events that he was involved in on his downfall uh, his downfall yeah <laughs> there we go. essentially yeah 
And um, so everyone can go back and listen to our episode on it's part two of the uh, rise and fall of democracy. No, no, the rise of democracy in South Korea. I think that was the episode, wasn't it? Something like that. No, no, the, the June struggle. The June struggle. Yes, that's right. That's well, right. That's the rise of democracy. <laughs> so, but yes, yeah. the June. But that that was that's what it was called, right? The June yep. struggle. Part two. We talk a lot about Chun Doo-won. Um and so there was an assassination attempt on him in Rangoon. Uh, which, of course, at the time was Burma, but now is Myanmar. So uh, Yangon, Yangon is the name of the city generally now. I think it's just what it goes by. And because um, I always think of Crab Rangoon when I see that. It oh, okay. Hung- it makes me hungry. <laughs> hungry? Sa- assassination attempts make you hungry, Joe? Rangoon makes me hungry. <laughs> the co host of the Dark Side of Soul podcast likes assassinations, makes him hungry. <laughs> <laughs> You do that. You keep saying that. I'll go eat my but, filet of fish. <laughs> um, hey, I'm probably going to go get one too. There's just no. I live in the middle of nowhere. There's no McDonald's around here. Anyway, um, so the assassination attempts took place at the Martyrs Mausoleum, and three bombs were detonated in the roof. Uh, and the roof collapsed, killing 17 Korean politicians, security personnel. And also journalists. So the mm. the bombing at Gimpo International Airport was likened to those two previous events: the bombing mm. in Daegu, the U.S. government building, and the bombing in Rangoon. So you can look up more information on the Rangoon bombing. That was very very big news. A lot of things happened in the aftermath there. So if you're interested, just Google uh, Rangoon bombing 1983, and you'll get more information. Mm. Uh, now, also at the time. When the Gimpo airport bombing occurred, there were all these protests going on. So the Gwangju massacre had already occurred, um, of course, and Korea was leading up to the kind of the changing over of actually having a, a proper election leading up to the Olympics. And then, of course, it started with the Asian Games. So, but there was still heavy protesting going on at the time. And a lot of people, at least some people in the government initially thought the bombing of the airport may have been dissidents. Like a lot of people thought yeah. the bombing in Daegu were dissidents. Back but in those days, likely. it really was hard to figure out who did what. And there were, it was like, mm. was it this bad guy or this bad guy? Or was it a freedom fighter? Or was it? Right. Right. Who's not a bad guy. Yeah. 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 So, um, but yeah, uh, but it, it, it it's very likely that it was North Korea, given the precedent of them not wanting the South to host in 1970, host the Asian Games in 1970, and then boycotting these games and the belief that they were going to disrupt the 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 games uh, in in 1986. Um, Asian Games, yeah, Asian the Games Asian, in 1986. The Asian Games, the, the Asian games yeah, yeah. So, um, so. The results ultimately was uh, visitor numbers, the expected visitor numbers really dropped. If I remember right, it was like a hun- they expected about 190,000 foreign visitors to Korea mm-hmm. at the time. And they all mostly would have been in Seoul. So hotels at the time were only accepting foreign clients. Koreans are not allowed to stay in hotels mm. around Seoul at the time. And the government handed out massive loans to hotels to to really uh, refurbish 
their rooms and clean up their lobbies and, and put fire escapes on them, put fire escapes in their buildings <laughs> and fire extinguishers. Yeah. To really, to, to modernize their hotels, to make them safe and comfortable for these international visitors that are coming from around the world. You have to remember where Korea has only really started to become an international destination. And like the last really only like six years, uh, where the numbers have really started to slowly creep up. And of course, yeah, we, I mean, we work in the tourism industry. It's, yeah. 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 So 2016 was a bad year, and that was because of the FAD agreement between South Korea and the U.S., and that, that really annoyed China. So, you know, the, the the millions of Chinese people who come here every year didn't show up in oh, 2016. The, the, the missiles and... Jeju. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So. Uh, so. Or not. No. Not. In, not in Jeju. The Thad. It's in. Um. um God. Where is it? Sung. Uh, it's not in Jeju. Um. It's in a farming community in the central part of the of the peninsula. Oh. I can't remember the name of the town. It's really. It's a small nowhere town that no one's ever heard of. I was associated uh, with Jeju because Chinese were because China Jeju. the Chinese tourists. Yeah. Well, they sent <laughs> they sent at least one. Cruise, uh, cruise ship to Jeju and they didn't disembark. They stayed on their boat. <laughs> they had their holiday holiday on the ship as, as a protest, as a tourist protest. So anyway, so it's only really been in the last less than 10 years, less than a decade that Korean tourism, international tourism has really started to pick up. Um, so for Seoul to anticipate 190,000 guests in the, in 86 for the Asian Games... Um, was pretty big. It was a very big deal. And they only ended up getting like 90,000, something mm. like that. It was a very, very small percentage uh, to their expectation. And it was very likely because of the bombing. Mm. So North Korea won. It's exactly what they wanted to happen. They wanted to disrupt the games and disrupt any positive impact on South Korea's uh, economy at the time. Uh, economy and image, have, yeah. And their image in Israel, exactly. So, um, and then a long-term result was a massive increase in security personnel and uh, uh, philosophy and in the way they approach security. So the security for future events, especially the '88 Olympics, was really, really strong. Yeah. And of course, the '88 Olympics uh, went off without any kind of real security hitches. The only problem that happened in the '88 Olympics was. Ben Johnson won the gold medal for Canada, and but he was drugged up. Oh, that was the only thing that. That was the only thing that happened. You were not going to talk about burned pigeons. <laughs> oh, okay, that's right. Burned that. doves or something like that. Like doves I, that were caught on fire and 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 boxing matches that were rigged. <laughs> oh, was there a boxing match? See, I'm not a sports fan. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I just remember the Ben Johnson things. I loved him. I don't know. I was always into runners. I loved running. I thought running was cool. I was a fast runner when I was a little kid. Oh. Now I just walk everywhere. I don't run for nothing. Yeah. So yeah, running's for kids. <laughs> running's for kids and drugged up Olympic athletes. Yeah. Sorry, we just rabbit. lost all of our Olympic athletes who listen to the show. Oh, um, darn. But that was the Gimpo uh, airport bombing. Pretty nasty. But mm. it really, it really, um, while it was terrible. The result was that Korea tightened security and it opened Korea up for future events with like the the Olympics, which they already had, and then the 2002 World Cup. Yeah. And, uh, 
they've hosted the Asian Games since then, um, and of course the the Olympics a couple of years ago. And increased security at Kempo mm-hmm. and future airports. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll return to the podcast after this message. Get our comic book, The Dark Side of Soul, Weird Tales from Korean Lore, at our website, darksideofsoul.com, or get it at Comixology. If you're in Seoul, visit the Dice Latte near Huegi Station to get your copy. Written by me and drawn by Tim Bauer, it's 50 pages of folkloric dread. And now, back to the show. Another similar incident... It could say related. It's related, mm-hmm. not similar, but related. Is uh, Korean Air Flight 858, uh, November, the next year, November 29th, 1987. Um, it was a flight, a multi leg flight from Baghdad to Seoul. And it exploded mid flight right before it reached Thailand. Um, it turns out this was a North Korean terrorist attack. And it was um, really intriguing. I don't know. The more I read about this, it it, sa- it does sound like a Tom Clancy spy novel a bit, the way it was done. Um, so these two North Korean a- agents, uh, young man and woman, uh, they, they, they fly to Moscow. Then they take a car, go to Budapest, then Vienna. In Vienna, they get these uh, they get these uh, two forged Japanese passports, and they pose as tourists there in Vienna. Then they flew to Belgrade, where they received a time bomb from someone who arrived there by train. And the time bomb was disguised as a Panasonic transistor radio to make it even more Japanese. And they also had a, a bottle of explosive disguised as a liquor bottle. So... Um, that was supposed to help intensify the blast. And, and I'm sure people listening now are like going, what? They could bring bottles of liquor on planes? Yeah, right. Well, well, this is one of the reasons you can't. Right. 30, <laughs> 30 plus years ago. And my, my, another reason they're kind of iffy about you bringing electronics on planes. But, I mean, yeah. Um, well, they also were able to detect explosives better these days than back then. Sure. Mm. Um. So the, uh, the 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 so they went from Belgrade and flew to Baghdad, and they waited at Saddam International Airport for three and a half hours for for Korean Airlines A fifty eight to arrive. Uh, they boarded. They 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 placed. The explosives in the storage bin above their seats, which I think I remember them being 7A and 7B. Why does that number stick in my head? It's not even in my notes. <laughs> and then the plane, the plane left on for its first leg at Abu Dhabi, where they disembarked the plane. They left, but they left their, their stuff behind. Um, they had purchased tickets from Abu Dhabi to Rome as part of their escape. And part of this, they tried to fly to Amman, Jordan. On their way to Rome, um, and uh, but they got stopped in Bahrain because they had trouble with their travel visas. Um, now turn around to the flight itself. Uh, the, it was yeah, it was on its leg from Abu Dhabi to Thailand, carrying one hundred four passengers and eleven crew, 
and it exploded nine hours after the bomb had been planted. Almost, yeah, almost towards the end of that fl- that leg of the flight. Um, most all on board except two were South Koreans. Uh, mostly young construction workers returning home from all these construction projects that were happening in the Middle East at the time. Uh, that was a big deal. Korea was involved in at the time. Still. Uh, uh, meanwhile, back in Bahrain, uh, the the, aid, the North Korean agents' passports were spotted as forgeries, and they knew they were about to get caught. So they had hidden these cyanide capsules in cigarettes, and they they bit into the cyanide capsules. Uh, the male died in the hospital, but the woman was able to be revived from poison from being poisoned. Her name was Kim Hyun Hee. Um, at the time she tried to claim she was a, Ch- a Chinese orphan that was raised in Japan, but in the trials and in, in the depositions, the, the cigarettes they used were, were a dead giveaway because these were the cigarettes commonly used by North Korean agents. <laughs> Change your brand of cigarettes, people. Yeah. You think they would have, they'd easily be able to get some cigarettes from China at that, at that time. I'm sure. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, but interrogations. This is the weird story. This is uh, this was this was I think this was claimed in a deposition at the UN by a South Korean uh, diplomat. Um, they said that uh, uh, Kim Hyun Hee was shown like a TV program of South Korea and how modernized it was and it, how different was everything that she was raised brainwashed to believe. And when she saw this, she threw her arms around the female investigator and confessed to the bombing. <laughs> it's so dramatic. It's it just it just reeks of Korean drama. Propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh. Um so this bombing, um, it was it, it was planned by Kim Jong il. Uh, before he became leader of North Korea is when he was mm. in the wings. And it was uh, just like the, the Gimpo bombing. It was meant as a scare tactic before the 88 Olympics to try to prevent athletes from wanting to go to South Korea because your, your flight too could be bombed. Mm. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the immediate aftermath of this was, it did help Chundu Wan uh, get his successor Noteu elected. We talked about this a bit in the June struggle episode, I think. Mm, yeah, I think so. Mm. Yeah, because Noteu was kind of his uh, protege, and so he was wanting No to to take over a lot of what he was doing and not 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 prosecute him, <laughs> <laughs> not go after him, uh, and it, it, the the vote was split. Um, it was a bit Kim Young Sam and the two Kims. Kim Dae Jung. Kim, Kim Dae Jung. Yeah. DJ. Mm. Mm, right. Mm. Yeah. And no Tae was elected. But it, but this this uh, terrorist attack helped solidify the public's uh, support of uh, the the conservatives in power. Um Internationally, in the U.S., this put North Korea on the state sponsors of terrorism list officially. Uh, and to this day, North Korea denies it ever had anything to do with it. 
Uh, Kim Hyun-hee, the North Korean agent herself, was sentenced to death, but she was pardoned by No, no Tae-woo when he, when he was, became president. He claimed that she was brainwashed by North Korea. Uh, in 1990, a South Korean movie was called Mayumi was made about her and this incident. And uh, she later published a book in 93 called The Tears of My Soul. And uh, Kim Hyun-hee now lives in an undisclosed location under tight security for fear of retaliation from both North Korea and the families of the people she killed on that flight. That's interesting. I wonder where she lives. I bet she doesn't live. I bet no one, no, no one even probably knows what she looks like. Um, yeah, because I couldn't find pictures of her. Yeah. She's I didn't protected. hunt that hard. I didn't hunt that hard. Yeah, she's uh, protected, she, I'm sure. She was able to travel to Japan for a special diplomatic visit or some type of special visit. And they were able to waive uh, criminal proceedings against her because she was considered a criminal in Japan. Not for the terrorist bombing, but because she had a forged Japanese passport. <laughs> or in the clink. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, that's what happened yeah. with that. Interesting. I've never read. I'd like to. I wonder if that book is still being published. The Tears of My Soul. I'd like mm. to read that. Yeah. It, it's about her, her upbringing in North Korea and how she was brainwashed. And how yeah. she was trained. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So. So let's, let's, but, let's have one more. One more. Let's wrap up the 80s. Yeah. Let's go into the, the 90s. Let's wrap up the 80s. Let's get some. Uh, let's rickroll everyone and wrap up the 80s. Um, so. Uh, yeah. And move away from airports a little bit. And airplanes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, not Not a whole lot to say. Because this is such a famous case, um, this is easily Korea's most famous uh, murder case or series of murders. Uh, and it was for 30, 30 years, Korea's most infamous unsolved murder case. Um, mm -hmm. Second, uh, first followed probably by the, the, the Frog Boys. Um, and it's the Hwasong serial murders. Now, from let's not let's not make the mistake in assuming our all of our audience knows what the Hwasong serial murders were. That's right, and that's why we're going to talk about it. But um, so I don't. <laughs> so first of all, Hwasong is a city. It's uh, it's kind it's of Suwon. South. It's Suwon. Yeah. yeah, it's southwest of Suwon, so southwest of Seoul, and. But at the time, it was the the districts were different. Now, now it's become an incorporated city now, but there were different districts at the time. That, oh, it's where the fortress oh. is, mm -hmm. right? That, yeah. that King Jongjo had built, right? But at the time, there was all these different the different oh, they call them in Korean the smaller districts, and um, but now it's all incorporated and now in Suwon. So, uh, yeah, there were a series of murders there. Between 1986 and 1991. There's also some really good fried chicken there. That's right. And that's the birthplace of fried. See, there's Joe. 
you know, foreshadowing his need and desire to do a food podcast. <laughs> just, the fried chicken there is so good. Yes, it is. Yeah, and it's not far from it. It's that's right. It's not right at from, the walls of the fortress. That's right. There's an entire street of chicken and beer neighborhood yeah. neighborhood. Yeah. So there were a series of victims. They were all women. And what was unusual about the deaths of these women, the murders of these women, mm-hmm. was their ages. Now, all of them were from similar backgrounds, except for their ages, but they all, they were all fairly low middle class mm-hmm. and, or, or low cl- lower class farmers. Um, there were some comments from people at the time who said that nothing happened in, in Hwasong before this. There were things like uh, break-ins, but but we were all so poor that there was nothing worth stealing anyway. Mm. So there there was nothing really big happened there um, until uh, a 71-year-old woman disappeared on September 15th, 1986. Now, her name was Yi Wan Im, and she turned out to be the first victim of the Hwasong killer. Go ahead to October 1920, same year, 86. October 20th, 86, not 1920. Yeah. No, but I'm not traveling back in time. You said October 1920. Did I say 1920? Yeah. <laughs> no, not back wow, then. Wow, we got travel, time traveling. Yeah, no, that's back then. That's, that's, uh, that's occupation period. Um, October 20th, 1996, a 25-year-old, a 25-year-old woman named Pak Hyun Suk disappeared. She's discovered her body. She's dead. Mm. December 12th, 86, Kwan Jung Bon, 25 years old, disappears. She's found murdered. December 14th, 86, E.K. Suk, 23 years old, is found murdered. Go to January 10th, 87, Jung Jin Young, 18 years old, disappears, and she's found murdered. May 2nd, 1987, Pak Eun-ju, 29 years old, disappears. She's found murdered. September 7th, 1988, An Gi-sun, 54 years old, disappears and is found murdered. September 16th, 1988, Pak Sang-hee, 13 mm-hmm. years old, oh my, is murdered in her bed. <gasps> November 15th, 1990. Gianni, sleeping, was sleeping with me tonight. <laughs> it's just Joe. If no one can see the video, Joe's daughter. Joe's daughter is there. <laughs> Why? <She's>... I'm scared. snoring. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Gian's scared about. Her father's snoring. Yeah. <laughs> um... So, November 15th, 1990, Gimmi Jung, 14 years old, is murdered. Mm. And then go to April 3rd, 1991, Kwon Sung Sang, 67 years old, disappears, and she's found murdered. All of these victims were raped and strangled. They're often strangled with articles of their own clothing, sometimes uh, with ropes or strings. Uh, the earlier murders, the first few cases, 
they were strangled by hand. Uh, a lot of them had their underwear placed over their faces. <gasps> in the later murders, objects were found around and inserted in the bodies, including including peach slices, razor blades, utensils, and pens, like ballpoint pens. Uh, of course, this is a very small area. It shocked everyone. Yeah, everyone was, yeah. Nothing happens, there. and then the string of murders within such a relatively right. short period. Yeah, just a matter of a few years. In waves, uh, right? And uh, they, the police realized after the first couple of murders that they're dealing with a serial killer. Uh, but was difficult. Like I said, the difficult thing was that the age groups were so varied, from thirteen to seventy-one. So it's just just an odd. Uh, odd group and um the the types of you know and how the murders advanced and got different uh and got worse you know they were all they're all terrible but i mean in in how the victims suffered um just was shocking uh mm. shamans got involved and they started performing rituals to try to curse the killer or have him brought to justice. Uh, I wonder if this worked. Well, clairvoyant soothsayers, they were consulted to try to find the man. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them said, uh, you have to find a man with one finger. And these are all the things. How does someone strangle someone with one finger? Well, that, you know, he was, that was only the early, the, the early, the earlier victims. The later ones were all strangled with, Articles of clothing or ropes, strings, mm. and the sort. Okay. So, um, anyway, so these were some of the 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 some folkloric ideas that that people were desperate uh, to use to try to, to put a, an end to all the these poor women in this community in these communities yeah. who were being murdered. Uh, it turned out to be. And I still, I think it still is the largest single investigation in Korean history, even though like the, the frog boys, of course, that involves uh, a lot of police officers looking for the, the, the missing children. Mm-hmm. This was a series of murders that they had no, they had no leads. They were finding bits of evidence, but like I mentioned in the, who is the, the cyanide killer episode, uh, forensics is really poor in Korea in the late 80s, early 90s, and they weren't able to to find any concrete evidence to to um, to find anyone to find a a a, cult, a, a perp. Um, and so, two million person hours were put into the case, uh, and over 21,000 suspects were questioned Mm. Uh, and thousands and thousands of fingerprints were lifted and taken they found nothing they found absolutely nothing out of that massive search pool now on July 27th 1988 sorry 1989 so this is between the eighth victim who was the 13 year old girl Pak Sang Hee who was murdered in her bed and uh, the ninth victim, Kim Mi Jung, also a fourteen, a, a young woman, fourteen years old, killed in November nineteen ninety. So, summer, July, 
1989, a 22-year-old man named Yoon Sang-yo was arrested and later convicted for the murder of Pak Sang-hee, the eighth victim who, who mm. was murdered in her bed. There was very loose forensic connection. Uh, pubic hairs were, were allegedly found, and they said they matched his pubic hairs. It was like, in what way did they match his pubic hairs? I think they all look a little bit similar. Um, and yeah, yeah, I've been to a sauna. <laughs> uh, but he admitted guilt as well, and then that was enough uh, for the police. Mm. And uh, he was deemed a copycat murderer. He was not responsible for all the other murders. But now, strangely, it was revealed later that there were four other murders happening at the same that happened at the same time. The first one was December 4th, the uh, 24th, Christmas Eve, 1987, an 18-year-old victim. Name was mm -hmm. never released. July 7th, 1989, a 7-year-old victim. Mm -hmm. Name was never released. January 26th, 1991, 15-year-old victim, also nameless. And March 7th, 1991, a 27-year-old victim whose name was not released. Mm -hmm. So now... It went on. So these murders went unsolved for decades. September eighteenth, twenty nineteen. Now, Joe, you probably remember this. This was huge news. Yeah, huge news. Um, right at coming towards the end of the last quarter of twenty nineteen. Yi Chun Jae was in jail for murder. He had murdered, raped, and murdered his sister-in-law. He was 18 years old at the time on January 13th, 1994. And he was serving a life sentence when he confessed. Uh, he was initially given the death penalty for her murder, but it was eventually reduced to life in prison. Um, and he then, through new, new DNA, was connected to the Hwasung murders. He was approached, and he was interrogated, and it turned out he was guilty. He killed all ten of those victims, possibly the other four. Mm. During the investigation, or the interrogation, I should say, he also confessed to over 30 different rapes. Individual rapes. Wow. So that young man who was in jail, sent to jail... In 1989, Yoon Sang-yo, he was in jail for almost 20 years, and he was innocent. So when uh, he he was already out of jail, when uh, the when uh, when Yi Chun Jae's confession uh, was released in 2019, mm -hmm. and then E then demanded a new trial, of course to have his record expunged. Yi Chun Jae was a witness at the trial. Oh my. Yeah, I can see and the he, logic in that. Yeah. Yeah. And he came in and he said, I killed Pak Sang Hee, that 13 year old. I killed her in her bed and I did this to her. Oh my God. So, uh, uh, of course, Yun Sang Yo was. You know, his criminal record was expunged. Um, 
I'm certain he received some sort of compensation from the yeah, government. Yeah, should. Should. Yeah, you'd imagine. Uh, he's a victim as well. Like he, he, so it turned out that he admitted guilt under duress. He was forced, probably <sighs> tortured into admitting guilt to killing that, that poor girl in 1988. So he lost all of it. He was only 22 years old. He lost his entire adulthood uh, because of that. Hmm. So I'm not sure what kind of uh, compensation he got, but I'm, I'm certain he did. Now, um, the kind of the, the lingering point of, of, of anger for a lot of people in this case is that up until 2015, Korea had a statute of limitations on murder. <sighs> and it was 15 years. So the last murder case that happened in Hwasong that Yi and Jay was responsible for before he murdered his sister-in-law a few years later, and which he went to jail for, the, the uh, statute of limitations ended 15 years later. It was changed to a statute of limitations of 25 years, and then in 2015, it was completely removed. But the issue is, the removal of a statute isn't retroactive. Yeah. So, so each of limitations ended in 2006 for him. That's right. For um, for the last murder. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so even though D new DNA evidence or new technology that links him uh, through DNA to the murders and his confession, he can never be tried for the murders that happened in Hwasong for the 10 that we, that, that very likely, you know, at the time that we knew happened. And then the other four, mm. he will never, ever be tried for them for the terror he he caused that, in that, that it's absolutely terrifying. And considering that he was initially given the death sentence for the murder of his daughter, of his uh, sister-in-law, um, but it was reduced to life in prison. If he was executed, and he may have been, because in 94, Korea was still executing people. It was 97 that they stopped. And we mentioned that in the Who's the Cyanide Killer episode as well. Um, if he was executed, the Hwasong murders never would have been solved. Mm. And that's it. So there's a lot of information about the murder case a little bit uh, that's all kind of the, the those are the key details um so to go quick to uh just jump into films recommendations memories of murder mm. is based on these crimes and that's an excellent excellent film uh same director as parasite what's his name uh, uh, uh bon, bon jung ho yes right yeah who was new york times crossword answer today <laughs> i saw your post <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, so the film is dramatized but it, it it really does highlight some of the key issues all of the different suspects the incompetency of the police which is a, a common theme in a lot of these early early murder cases we've talked about them a few times 
and um, how they never ever solved it mm. until 2019. We'll return to the podcast after this message. Take a walk down the dark alleys of the Forgotten 600 Year History of Bloody Massacres. See the highways and morning ghosts. Come face to face with souls deep as dark as secrets. What lies under the concrete? Or who? The dark side of soul ghost walk. Look now, if you dare. All right. Um, listener mail. Yeah, I got a fun one. Um, where's my, okay. Yes. So, uh, so last week my daughter lost her fifth baby tooth Aww. and she was really excited. It's one of the ones in the front. She's really excited. And, and, uh, and so I took a photo of her holding up her tooth, just her hand. I don't put her her face on any of the dark side of soul social media, but just her hand holding up her little baby tooth. And um, I posted it on our Instagram with some of uh, Korean folklore based around losing your, a tooth. And in times past, Korean said that if you took your tooth, your baby tooth and, tooth, and you threw it on uh, a roof, the rooftop, uh, then um, uh, a magpie would come and collect it carry it away, carry it away, and then impart good fortune onto the child. So um, how would the little, tooth fairy find it? <laughs> the, the, the magpie brings it to the tooth fairy. Joe, don't worry. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> Sounds like how you get your money. <laughs> so uh, we get good fortune. So maybe you get good money. You get money later. Money. But uh, one of our followers on Instagram, Irene in dress she she's Korean. She responded, "I tossed mine on the roof when I was a child as well." Oh wow! So so signifying she's quite young. She's in her. Th- so I asked her how old she is. She's in her her late twenties. I think she's like twenty. Now I forget. I think she's thirty. So uh, that indicates that not even that long ago, uh, Koreans were still practicing this fun folk belief of hmm. throwing their tooth on the roof of of their homes for That's good fun. luck. That sounds fun. Mm-hmm. I'd, it'd be hard for us to toss one on the roof of our apartment building. Yeah, I wonder. We can't where really. We, she can't throw up sixteen stories. No, <laughs> that's right. Can't really do that stuff anymore. Maybe that's why they. Maybe that's why they stopped doing it. Generally, <laughs> use a may... slingshot. <laughs> <laughs> drone. Use a drone. Put it up there. Just drop it off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Oh, uh, wonderful. Thank you, Irene and Dress. Mm. I hope you have lots of good fortune. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to thank uh, Sorexan for our music, which you can find more of lovely, spooky ambient tunes on Bandcamp under the name Jeju Digital. We also want to thank our top tier patrons. Angel Earl, Joel Bonamini, Jamie Staley, Sharon Cullen, Devin Hifner, Minsuk Lee, and Laura Casey. If you want to join our patrons, go to patreon.com slash darksideofsoul and join our motley crew of fun spirits. And we do have a new patron 
not not a top tier, but just he's just joined us. But Scott, just say hello to Scott. Thank you for joining hey, Scott. us just just this week. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Um, and, and so you get you get a lot of extra stuff when you become a patron. And I I was going through. Uh, I was looking. I was checking out our numbers. I I hadn't really checked our num- numbers at all, and I noticed that uh, most of our patrons are top tier patrons. They are uh, mm-hmm. more. Uh, uh, I think half. I think right, or a little more, a little bit more than half. Well, mm, oh, okay, that's math. I don't do math. <laughs> uh, I think that's right. I think we have. Yeah, I think it's 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 more than half. Mm. But anyways, everyone seems to be having fun, and they get their special gift every month from us, delivered to their door. Mm. Little things. This month, it's. Uh, did you see what I? What I did. I yeah the the cup the cup holders. I have one of those too. Yeah, the, the, the not, things you dangle on your cup, and it's yeah, supposed to look like a, they. Uh, mine's a skeleton. The Korean ghost. The ghost. I'm not Japanese ghost from like the the ring or something. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. But mine. Mine glows in the dark. Let's see if I can show you everyone who's oh. who's on the. Yeah, you get you get video versions of our show if you're a patron as well. Boing. First, the, it's, there you oh. go. Yeah, all I right. Got a skeleton, really skinny. Skeleton. All right, awesome. <laughs> no fillet of fish for him. Cup toppers. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you all for listening. We we will be back next week, and we're going to talk about this disasters of the 90s these are ones that i'm sure you know of these are some famous ones so thank you for listening until next time stay spooky good night